Well, a few years ago, I decided to try out a new recipe. I had never before made gnocchi pastas. They're those little pasta dumplings. I never made those before, so I decided to give it a try. And uh, so I looked up a recipe online. I found this video of this Italian guy. It looked really authentic, who was making these little dumplings. They looked wonderful. The video was like mostly in Italian, and so I was just kind of like trying to track along with what to do. Got my ingredients together. Gnocchis are made with like mostly potato, flour, and egg yolks. So I got those together, watched this video, and at the end I realized that he didn't really uh, specify exactly how much potato and eggs and flour to use necessarily. Uh, It was more just kind of like a general ballpark. So I watched the video and tried to track how much to use, and I, I put together what looked like about what he did made this pasta dough, got the little dumplings, they looked really good, put them in my pasta water, and a couple minutes later I came and I pulled the lid, and what I found inside looked more like kind of mashed potatoes, like a mashed potato mush is what I found inside of the pot, more than pasta noodles. So I did a little digging, and what I realized is that I used three times the amount of potato that I needed because I just kind of had this vague idea of what my recipe was supposed to look like. In recipes, specificity matters. Specificity matters. And we've been in a sermon series called Half-Truths, We Half-Believe. One of the things that we've realized is that when we speak to one another, especially about biblical things or about faith, our specificity really matters. It really matters. We have talked about phrases like, follow your heart, or God won't give you more than you can handle, things that seem to have almost a kernel of truth, but there's something off about them. The phrase that we're going to be talking about today, in many ways, can be interpreted as a full, whole truth. Like, it can be fully true, but also it's not specific enough for us to also not think that it could be completely wrong, actually, or it could just be half true. It's, It's just too vague. Our phrase for today is, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. This phrase is everywhere. Like, it's all over culture. A friend of mine knew that I was preaching the sermon. She was out for a walk and saw someone with a tattoo of everything happens for a reason on their arm. She snapped it and and sent it over to me. This phrase is everywhere. Because in many ways, this is a full truth. When you think about the phrase, everything happens for a reason, it's most often used and said to point to like a larger purpose, a greater plan for something that's going wrong or something that feels chaotic or something that we can't make sense out of. And so for Christians, when we use this phrase, everything happens for a reason, often I think what we're meaning to say can be something like, God's with me in this, or God will make good out of whatever it is I'm going through, which these are full truths. Like these are full biblical realities that we're naming, but also because everything happens for a reason is so vague, it can be misinterpreted. It can certainly be misinterpreted. And the problem comes when everything happens for a reason is misinterpreted and we say it to someone else who is walking through something hard, it can cause some real damage. It can be very hurtful. 
We have an underlying belief and an underlying hope when we say everything happens for a reason. Our underlying hope that typically motivates us even saying this is that when we encounter someone, we hope that if we can identify a logical, deeper purpose for everything that happens, then the pain will go away then the hurt that someone else is going through, it won't hurt as bad. If you can just find that reason, that one purpose, then their pain, their hard experience, their chaos won't feel so bad. Kate Bowler is a professor at Duke Divinity School. She's a historian and a scholar. And when she was getting to a pretty peak place in her career and she had a very young child, she was given a stage four cancer diagnosis. In the aftermath of processing this diagnosis, she wrote a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved. As she was processing how frequently this phrase, everything happens for a reason, was said to her, what she realized is that God in her suffering, in her grief, was really inviting her to ask some deeper questions. Like God was asking, wanting her to ask some harder things that didn't mitigate her pain, like they didn't take it away. But everything happens for a reason seemed like a nice, easy answer. This is what she writes in her book. She says, anyone who has lived in the aftermath of something like this, some crisis, knows that it signifies the arrival of three questions so simple that they seem in turn too shallow and too deep. Why, God, are you here? And what does this suffering mean? At first, those questions had enormous weight and urgency. I could almost hear him. I could almost make out an answer but then it was drowned out by what I've now heard a thousand times. Everything happens for a reason. We so often desire a simple answer, like something that'll just solve our problems, make everything easier in the here and now. But what we find God doing in our lives and in the lives of those in scripture is that when suffering happens, when pain happens, God typically draws near to us and then invites us to go through it alongside him. And so when we think about this broad half-truth, maybe truth, we don't know, everything happens for a reason, we can look to scripture to add the necessary specifics, to give us exactly what it is that we're really trying to say to hone in on a biblical truth. There's a, a one verse in particular that is quoted very often when we say everything happens for a reason. It seems to kind of like undergird that idea. The verse is from Jeremiah 29, 11. You may have seen this on bumper stickers or on t-shirts. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. On the surface, When we read this verse, what we may hear, completely out of context, if we just read this verse, what we may hear is that God will prioritize our prospering and our flourishing in the here and now. And that God will protect us from anything that would cause us hurt or pain in this life if only we have the right kind of faith. When read on its own like this, 
this verse can almost even sound like God is handing us like a lottery ticket in this life. Like he's just handing us a lottery ticket that's winning. And once we cash it in, like God will just solve the problems and provide for us the prosperity that we need in this life. But if we look at the cultural context in which this was written, and if we look at the verses surrounding it, and even at the language that is at work in this verse, what we find is a much deeper, full, whole truth. This passage was written to God's people, not when they were in a happy and healthy place, but when they were in exile. This means God's people, historically, they had been attacked from people on the outside. They had been torn away from their homes, from their place of worship. Their families and neighbors and communities had been ripped apart and they had been displaced into new lands with new languages, new ways of worshiping. And they had to find ways to stay secure in their faith, to maintain their love of God and to be able to hold on to one another. This passage was not written to people who are doing well and wanting to do better. This was written to people who were devastated and they were just searching for a kernel of hope. When we take that into context, then we can read what happens just in the verse before it. This verse is hardly ever quoted with verse 11, but I'm gonna invite us to read together Jeremiah 29 verses 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Did anyone catch the timeline as we were reading that? How many years do we have? 70 years, 70 years is the timeline given for this hope and this promise that God is offering. So let's just stay there for a second. Let's think about what happens in 70 years. In the ancient world, people weren't even living 70 years. Like a lifespan didn't get up to 70 years when this passage was written. And so really this promise that is offered, it is written to generations and generations and generations that would pass before this promise was fulfilled. This is a long range hope that God is offering to his people. God does not provide immediate relief to his people. Instead, he offers the hope of a future redemption. And in addition to pointing us toward this long-range future hope and redemption, we can also find deep truth and deep hope when we look at the language that Scripture uses to describe what God's promise actually is. If you are reading this uh, in a Bible, underline the phrase, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That word prosper can kind of trigger a lot of things. Uh, Emily Hamilton preached last week and she talked in part of her sermon about the, the prosperity gospel, the idea that God desires our health and our wealth and our flourishing in the here and now. And she talked about how when we step into the story of God and God's people, we're in a different story. We're in a different story. 
That word prosper can kind of cue us into those types of images, but if we look at what the Hebrew language is, the original language of this passage, the word is shalom. Can you say that with me? Shalom. Shalom doesn't necessarily mean prosperity. What it means is peace and wholeness. Peace and wholeness. Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest, writes, Shalom means God's all-consuming, all-redeeming peace. And this isn't kind of a peace that's just like, oh, everything's fine, we're all good. Shalom peace is actually this vision of taking everything that is broken, everything that has gone wrong, everything that is unjust, and making it right making it whole. The vision for shalom is one that takes the pain that we are in here that we are in here and now and brings healing, brings redemption of all things. And then additionally, if you look at that idea that God will not harm, plans not to harm you, the word for harm in Hebrew is ra. Can you say that with me? Ra. It actually means evil. What it means is really a category. What God is promising here isn't that he will promote uh, flourishing and wealth in this life and that he will keep us from stubbing our toes or getting into an accident or getting hurt in any way. What God is promising is that in the long range, God will provide a redemptive future that will hold peace and wholeness and reconciliation and will be protected from evil, from anything that is against God's peace and God's wholeness. Rather than giving us an image of like a lottery ticket that we just get to cash in, when we read this verse in its context, when we look around at the verses and the culture and the language, what we find is far more like God is handing us a certificate of inheritance. God is saying, you belong to me. You are part of my family. This may not be a lottery ticket that will solve all of your problems right now, but you and your children and their children and their children will participate in my kingdom. They will receive the wealth of my abundance and my wholeness in the fullness of time. This is a much deeper promise a much deeper promise. First Peter 1 verses 3 through 5 point us to this very truth. It says, In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter points us to this very inheritance that God is promising his people and he's proclaiming that in Christ, God has entered into this world. And by taking on our suffering, he has come alongside us that we may become part of the family of God. We get to participate in this inheritance and we get to show this inheritance, this joy, this care, this light to the world around us now that we have been part of God's family. Elizabeth Elliot is a famous missionary. She once wrote that we want to avoid suffering, death, sin, and ashes, but we live in a world crushed and broken and torn. 
a world God himself visited to redeem. We receive his poured out life and being allowed the high privilege of suffering with him, we that may then pour ourselves out for others. Because we are receiving this great inheritance, we have the privilege of offering that kind of love to one another. That kind of love that doesn't settle for simple, easy answers. Which brings us back to this phrase, everything happens for a reason. To turn this half-truth, everything happens for a reason, into a whole, full truth. Jeremiah 29 gives us a much deeper image of how God enters into suffering alongside us. And it gives us the specificity that we need to take a recipe that would otherwise look maybe like mush and make it a little more refined. The first thing that we need to learn from Jeremiah 29, 11 is that when we say everything happens for a reason, what we mean is that God is the one that we look to for hope. It's not just everything happening. This isn't the universe. It's not fate. God is the one who is at work. The second thing is that when things happen, God knows and is actively with us. Things don't just happen and then work themselves out. God cues into it, draws near to us, and goes with us through those things. And the last thing is that God isn't just working for some vague, broad reason, but in order to redeem the world. God is at work in order to redeem us and in order to redeem the world. So I would propose that if we are going to shift from this half-truth, everything happens for a reason, the full truth that we as Christians can hold on to, can deeply hold on to when we are going through times of suffering and when those who we love are, is that God redeems all things in Christ. God redeems all things in Christ. He will one day redeem all that is broken, pull all things together for the sake of his glory. We will still encounter others during our day-to-day lives who are hurting and we too will go through hard times. And so over the next few minutes, I'm gonna walk through a few alternatives. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. And as I walk through these alternatives, I would encourage you, you could take a picture on your phone of these if you wanted, or you could feel free to write them down. These are just a few statements or a few things to do when people are hurting. So instead of saying everything happens for a reason, one thing you could say is, that sounds so hard. That sounds so hard. Acknowledge their pain. Acknowledge the hurt that they're going through and offer them some empathy, some understanding that they are heard. The second thing to say, I'm here for you or I'm on your team. Let them know that they're not alone as they're going through whatever hard situation it is that they're going through. When you do that, you're reminding them that God is with them too. You're reminding them that God is drawing near to them and will go with them. Third, just show up. Just show up. Bring a meal or groceries or candy or flowers or whatever would bring them joy. Just show up. Show that you're there for them. The fourth, the question, how can I be praying for you? So much better than just, I'm praying for you or I will pray for you. How can I be praying for you? Let them name it and then follow through. Pray with them, pray for them. The last thing that I think we kind of underestimate is just silence. Give people space to feel 
give people space to talk and process. If you don't know what to say, just say, I don't really have words. I don't know what to say, and that's okay. That can be an act of grace. Show that you are with them. Our words and our actions matter. Being specific about what we mean matters. In moments in which we have the opportunity to come alongside others, when we see that they're hurting or that they're in pain, my prayer is that we would have the strength to withhold half-truths or easy answers and instead step in to the hurt alongside them, show that they are not alone, and point them to the hope and the truth that God is the one who is redeeming all things.